Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. All right, everyone. Um, welcome to the podcast. Today, I have another uh, really wonderful guest um, who's going to be talking to us all about informal mentorship and mentoring neurodiverse students. Our guest is Stephanie Santos Youngblood, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, get started by reading her bio. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephanie is a doctoral student in the Leadership and Innovation EDD program at Arizona State University's Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College and also holds an MA in Teaching English as a Second Language from Columbia University and a BA in Political Science from the University of Connecticut. She is passionate about supporting first-generation college students mm -hmm. and neurodiverse students through their college journeys yes welcome to the podcast stephanie thank you so much for having me of course so um i'm gonna ask you to to do what i typically ask my guests which is to share a little bit more about yourself your background backstory and your educational trajectory oh my gosh well i grew up in connecticut so i'm an la transplant now um <laughs> i've lived here for about 10 years um and you know growing up i didn't really know what careers were out there, what jobs are out there. I always talk about them as like the play school or the Lego careers, because if there wasn't a Lego character for it or Lego set for it, I didn't really know it existed. Um, and so as I was going through college, you know, I, I set my sights on teaching. Um, I didn't know the term first generation college student. I don't think it was really in use in as widespread a way as it is now. And there certainly weren't, you know, centers for first-gen students or first to go, or I'm the first or any of these slogans or centers. And so um, navigating college, just trying to reach that goal of becoming a teacher was very much like a trial and error type of experience. Um, and I did teach K-12 ESL and bilingual ed for a little bit and I took like the craziest career journey with just so many twists and turns, um, which I think is more and more common these days, you know, to just kind of see where opportunities take you. Um, and so now I am getting my EDD, um, hoping to really use that to transform the higher ed landscape to be a place where um, first gens don't accommodate the school, but the school accommodates and includes and welcomes and really takes full advantage of all the strengths of first gens. That's a really great way for you to introduce yourself. I feel like that was really succinct too. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of job interviews, so I think I'm getting good at it now. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I was like, you've done this before. <laughs> a, a few times, yeah. Oh, so you, um, mentioned kind of like didn't really know what it was like being a first-gen student and then um you also mentioned kind of like 
your interest in, in teaching, your own experience with K through 12, and now wanting to be in higher education kind of in general. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, at what point did you start to consider the topic of informal mentorship? Well, first of all, like, what does informal mentorship mean? And then like, at one point, did you realize that that was a thing either like for you or um, for the folks that you yourself mentor or femtor? Yeah, um, well, I think informal mentorship, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's those connections that you have that weren't set up by anyone that weren't um, that weren't made through any kind of formal program. It's just like, um, you know, being set up on a date to meet someone versus just like running into someone, meeting them and deciding to hang out, right? So there are so many people in our lives that are even outside of a campus that serve as informal mentors to us by giving us some kind of life guidance, right? We all rely in some way, shape or form on our elders. Um, and I'm gonna use that term very loosely because sometimes people are younger than us, but they kind of serve as an elder um, because they have a certain experience. Um, and so we really rely on a lot of those people and that network, um, which I think is really, really important for, especially first-gen students to get through college. You know, those relationships are what keep people going um, and they're so important and they're not always recognized by a university. They're not always documented. They don't always show up in metrics. Um, and so a lot of times we see these reports. I know I just used this, this citation in a paper I wrote, so I'm gonna throw it out there, but uh, UC put out, University of California system put out a report where they talked about um, first-gen graduation rates. And typically those are so much lower than continuing generation students. Um, and so what we see at like UCLA, for example, and other UC schools is that they're almost on par with continuing gen students. And in my experience working for a UC and knowing a lot of UCLA students is that that's not really necessarily because of anything the university formally did to support them and support their retention. It's usually in spite of the barriers that exist. And a lot of that mentorship that they received that really helped them actually graduate was from informal mentors. Um, and in my case, where my interest lies is with the campus service workers. And so these might be custodians, housekeepers, food service staff, maintenance workers, and they tend to be the most diverse workforce on a campus, yet they're an invisible workforce. Um, they're also people that students see probably more than anyone else. If you think about, you know, running into the custodian who might clean in your dorm room, for example, you might see them every day. And often because they are such a diverse population, they provide a bridge back to the community, the culture, the, the family um, that you kind of are in this struggle deciding how much of it you have to leave behind when you're in college. Not because you want to, because that's the expectation of this kind of dominant cultural uh, set of norms that exists on a college campus. So what I saw was that sometimes that connection with someone who, has not been to college, who, you know, isn't from this country, who doesn't uh, speak English as their first language, who can't help you write a paper necessarily, although sometimes they can, but can't necessarily help you write a paper or fill out your financial aid form, provide the most 
um, dense, meaningful and impactful types of mentorship. And I remember my experience in college just being terrified of all my professors and just anyone I would have to talk to. If someone had an office, I was just like, I don't even know how to enter the office. Like, do I knock? How long do I wait after I knock? Like, what's what's the system here? But there were people that worked um, in food service or, you know, even worked in the school store that showed me um, that I belong there much more than anyone else. And so when I talk about informal mentorship, those are the kind of experiences that I'm, I'm thinking about. That's, that sense of belonging is so important. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that, you know, when you're talking about informal mentorship, I, I wanted to ask if you wanted to share a little bit, just kind of like a shout out to like the book that is coming <laughs> out too, because I know this is informed by a book in which um, you're one of the co-editors. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that too? Just because I can't help myself. I want folks to know about it, to buy it, yes. to read it. <laughs> well, before I tell you all a little about the book, I'm going to give a little disclaimer. Um, our publisher is Rutledge Press. The price that they set on the hardcover is like ridiculous. Okay, um, we can check it out from the library. But <laughs> yes, what I, what I will <laughs> tell y'all to do is encourage your school library, your local yeah. library or whatever to purchase a copy because that hardcover price is really set with that in mind. Um, and in, I don't know, like 18 months, they'll have the paperback out for the rest of us. Um, but, <laughs> but the book um, is um, about campus service workers supporting uh, first-generation college students and that form of informal mentorship. And the way that I kind of got into this was through my role at UCLA, where I was program director for a club, a campus organization called Project Spell. And essentially, we had mostly undergraduate students, a few grad students who volunteered, and they worked one-on-one -on -one with campus service staff who wanted to improve their English. And so through you know, pairing all these students up, we saw that most of them were first-generation college students. Um, and most of them shared a cultural background um, or some kind of similarity in like family backstory or background or socioeconomic status as the person they were paired up with. Um, and so what ended up happening is yes, the volunteer is there to tutor the staff member, but the staff member is just providing this wealth of wisdom, support, um, all the great things about mentorship that they needed. And so I got together with uh, a couple of my buddies and my own mentors. Um, first is Latanya Reese Miles, shout out, hey LT. <laughs> shout out to um, LT. <laughs> everyone knows LT. I feel like everyone listening is like, oh, I know LT because LT is like, I don't even know. She's up on a pedestal for a lot of us, but she's gonna be mad at me for saying that. But LT is the greatest and she was running the first year experience program at UCLA. So we linked up. She was working with another friend, colleague of hers named Georgina Guzman. Hey, Gina. <laughs> and they were working on this because they had had their own experiences. Um, I know LT is super close with, with Walter, um, who I also know, and he's one of the custodians at UCLA. And so, um, they invited me to jump on as a co-editor. And so for the past 18 months, we've been working on this, just collecting stories of 
you know, some personal testimonies, some paradigm shift type of, of essays, some studies, um, just it's a like, there's like 25 different chapters in this book. So it's a bunch of different stories. I contributed a story, uh, my own personal experience as a first time professional. Um, and so it's about to be published. November 30th is the date. Oh, um, <laughs> I will get you the link for that. Um, it's from Rutledge Press. It's like I said, it's super expensive, but tell your library to get that because there is almost no literature specifically on this topic. Um, and we did feel that it's a contributor to sense of belonging, to institutional interconnectedness, to student success, retention, um, all kinds of great things that help Christians. You know, it's interesting because, well, one, like from my own lived experience, I can totally attest to that, to feeling seen, feeling heard, validated by campus service workers and informal mentors. And then also I've had students when I worked, you know, at UCSB who did research in, in education and were, those were the stories that would come up in the interviews from the students, the students who um, were trying to identify better ways to support first-gen students and some of the students that the, you know, the mentorship that they received were from their colleagues like maybe they worked you know for like food services mm -hmm. and it was their colleagues that were like giving them that kind of emotional support and validation to keep going so I I think you know you're right there's not enough literature on the topic and it's really exciting that this is this book is coming out mm -hmm. by the time I publish this actually I believe I'm publishing this on the 26th or I, it's that Friday <laughs> of, yeah. of Thanksgiving week. Um, it'll be a week away from when it comes out. Mm -hmm. So it'll be really good <laughs> timing uh, yeah. so that folks can kind of uh, pre-order or order uh, depending on when they listen to the episode. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for sharing and, and for bringing that up. I also... Um, Usually I try to say, kind of s segue into the other topic, but I think you're also here to talk about neurodiversity. And I, mm -hmm. I do think that informal mentorship is necessary and that, you know, a lot of the informal mentorship too kind of ties along with working with kind of diverse students and working mm -hmm. with students of different kind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, different parts of like the neurodiverse uh, or neuro neurodiversity spectrum. Uh, so I would love for you to kind of share a little bit more about that, about like, what does it mean to, to mentor neurodiverse students? We probably have all been doing it and not even realizing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so and how, what, yeah. Yeah. And what comes with that is um, we, like you said, we've been doing it and not realizing it. And that means we've probably been developing certain strengths, but also making certain mistakes just from lack of awareness. And so to kind of frame this, I'm neurodiverse. Um, I have ADHD, I'm in the process of doing my assessment or evaluation for autism. And so, um, which I highly suspect that I have. So um, this, a lot of this comes from my own personal experiences. You know, I'm 36, actually my birthday's on Sunday. So I'm about to be 37. So I've lived hey, a Scorpio. long- Hey, it's Scorpio season. Everyone, so we are not as toxic. <laughs> we are not as toxic as y'all think. We're just very honest, okay? 
but um you know it's my taking son even- is actually like a, just had his birthday a scorpio and on the spectrum on autism spectrum and Dang. you mentioned legos earlier and that's like one of his things like that is his life yes, his special <laughs> interest <thing>. yeah <laughs> so anyway i just have to put it out there because as soon as yeah. you mentioned the lego it's just the first thing i thought it was my son because that, that's all oh my that's like the majority of his time he spends doing making making amazing things (laughs) yeah he probably just gets super hyper focused on it and like the end result is amazing but um (laughs) it's a good it's a good connection to what I was about to say knowing that you're a parent of an autistic child because a lot of times the the lens for formal mentorship for neurodiverse students and for first gens has to or comes from a deficit lens comes from a deficit mindset and it's all about how do we make the normal people comfortable what are the the deficits that these neurodiverse students, these first gens, I mean, whatever the population is, if they're a non-dominant group, there's something that they're doing that doesn't fit in with the, the, the norms of the larger group or the dominant group. And most of this mentorship, most of this programming um, is informed by what will make the dominant group comfortable. Um, and that's where you see a lot of the types of therapies they give autistic children and other di- neurodiverse children um, is, is like, well, why don't you socialize like the rest of us? Um, and that's not really helpful. Like, I don't want to change myself. I'm, I'm okay with how I am. And I don't feel like I need to make anyone else comfortable just for the sake of doing it. Um, and so that's, that's why I said, you know, we have been mentoring neurodiverse students and maybe doing some great things, but also maybe being um, harmful if we're kind of unknowingly taking that mindset, which I can also be guilty of too. There's a really amazing essay by Judy Singer from like 1990s, somewhere in there where she really coined the term neurodiversity. And she talks about growing up being like disgusted and just humiliated by her mother who she figures was autistic or neurodiverse. And then when she herself became a mother, she started realizing, oh, I'm, I'm neurodiverse too, right? And so we members of this community are not exempt from causing harm to each other as well. Um, and so I think the key thing to know if you wanna be more inclusive of neurodiverse students is that you, what you think autism is or what you think ADHD is, and and there's a lot of overlap between them, um, is probably wrong. I know in my personal experience, um, I think people tend to get this image of like, you know, maybe a middle school white male who is just kind of crazy and like a class clown. And so if I talk about my ADHD in the workplace, that's the image that comes to mind. And that's, that's not, you know, how I am at all. Um, but I do struggle with executive dysfunction. Um, there's times that, you know, I get overwhelmed by the amount of tasks I do and get paralyzed. There's obviously focus issues, but um, ADHD is really like an excess of attention rather than a deficit of detention. It actually really needs a name change, I think. Like a, we need a new, we need to rebrand it um, because it's it, it doesn't represent, you know, the members of the community. Okay, and so, when are you writing that article? <laughs> yeah, that's that's gonna be the next one. <laughs> Cause you just like lit up a light bulb for me with you saying that. Cause I suspect my son might also have um, ADHD or be diagnosed yeah. with ADHD. 
<laughs> because he's like hyper focused on some things and other things really um you know it can be a struggle yeah um but yeah thinking of like excess of attention is like that's that's so true that actually like makes a lot more sense it's like where do you focus your attention um sometimes you know for me it's like I I have to let's say I have to clean my apartment and I could be one of those people that's like well let me just you know start here and I'll kind of like see how far I get but in my mind I have to have the time the energy the motivation um the plan to do all of it and if I can't, then I kind of freeze up. I kind of get paralyzed. And that's, you know, my executive dysfunction. And there are strategies around that. But um, it's one of those things that people don't know a lot about. And so there are stereotypes or a lot of, I mean, I don't have to tell you there are stereotypes that exist around autism that are completely false um, and that are harmful, that are hurtful. I mean, I've had the thought probably every day of my life of like, why do people hate us? We're not hurting anyone, but people hate us. You know, I, I left a job recently because my boss, you know, told me that I wasn't normal. Wow. And this is someone who's on a school board um, for one of the largest school districts in the country who has a child herself. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm thinking, you don't have to tell me I'm not normal because I've been reminded my whole life. But what you could do is get to know me a little bit and understand mm -hmm. that maybe my brain just works differently in the same way that you as a Latina want, um, you know, people who aren't Latina to understand your cultural background. Like I, I'm just asking you for the same thing. Um, and my experience has been that as soon as people get in their counter space, um, they use that to be really exclusion exclusionary and and cause harm to other people that don't fit into that counter space. And so um, I guess one of my goals with like this dissertation that I'm starting to work on and this conversation and like any future work I do is to really get people to think about what neurodiversity means um, and how to break down your ideas about ADHD, autism, and kind of reset yourself and just be open to um, connecting with someone that doesn't follow all the rules the way you think they should be followed. But you can still get a lot out of the relationship. The other thing that comes to mind with you sharing about this is um, thinking about ableism. You know, I think about ableism all the time for myself or as someone who has a chronic illness. But then I think about mm -hmm. ableism all the time with my son. And also my husband is self-diagnosed autistic. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he made that connection from our son getting assessed and diagnosed, mm -hmm. so many things shifted in our relationship and that helped mm -hmm. strengthen our communication, which we've had communication <laughs> issues for so yeah. long. Yeah. where I'm like oh you know like yeah. a lot of things like oh that was that was you were overstimulating having a meltdown you need space yeah. or oh like you know I kept asking you like are you even talking to me that's because you don't make eye contact you know like just things yeah. that I'm like it, it, a lot of things started to make sense and that has been my experience not just with my own child but also like friends who have children on the spectrum um, nonverbal, just realizing actually like we all have our own ways of communicating and we just have to learn their world 
or their method of communication or their method of doing things like my son who I homeschool I'm like I know timers are great for him you know so when he does work he has his timer I'm still trying to learn the strategies and I'm still trying to learn to be more anti-ableist because there's a lot of internalized ableism Mm -hmm. so that's like also kind of like I uh, as someone who identifies as neurotypical but Mm -hmm. disabled it's like a common tension and Mm -hmm. that I'm myself I'm learning and I'm hoping kind of we can teach others like in what ways can we continue to keep learning how to be you know anti um, anti anti-ableist how can we Mm -hmm. you know embrace neurodiversity a little bit Mm -hmm. more in our mentoring because again I don't get it right all the time and sometimes I catch myself and sometimes I don't and so it's a learning process yeah and no one does right we all have internalized everything ism right I mean it's the society we live in we've been conditioned and we're all kind of trying to reprogram ourselves I think for me one um one framework that has been um, very harmful um, in some ways to me has been, well, at least in the way that it's been operationalized. So um, no hate to the original authors of, of you know, any of these theories, but I know a lot of the Chicana feminist um, literature has really been taken by people and used to be exclusionary to people that don't fit into a very certain cultural mold. Um, And so I've had experiences where, um, you know, people talked a lot about relationships and how important that is to kind of have this cultural intuition and build relationships off of that and these networks. And, you know, if you're neurodivergent or neurodiverse, you don't necessarily um, interact in those ways that are culturally acceptable. And so I think we need to remember that, um, you know, we can critique our own culture <laughs> we, and we can use counter spaces to do that. So when we get in these safe spaces that are, you know, safe spaces where we're kind of among our own, um, however you want to define that, we need to use that as a space to be self-critical. Um, and there's another book I'm going to shout out. It's by Dr. Misery Keels. She wrote a book on campus counter spaces, and she talks about how we need to have brave spaces. Um, we can't use these counter spaces to just be like, yeah, okay, now we're safe from all, you know, the evil um, white people out there or all the neurotypicals or whatever the group is, right? Like, we have to be self-critical um, and see the things about, you know, our own cultures that could be improved because, you know, a better world is possible. We don't have to hang on to constructs that are harmful, just because it's the way it's always been done or it's what we're comfortable with. Um, and, you know, I, I thank people who educate me on their lived experience because you're just helping me be more open, less ignorant and see the ways that I'm harming people, which I don't wanna do at the end of the day. Wow. <laughs> There's so much to, to unpack there. Mm-hmm. I think when I when I hear you and I'm trying to listen and like process what you're saying mm-hmm. at the at the end of the day for me like I feel like this is a conversation about social justice you know is mm-hmm. is um, learning and embracing mentoring neurodiverse students is about is another branch another aspect of social justice and it's also about um, being willing to continuously sit in discomfort mm-hmm. and 
that's basically how we, like you said, we become less ignorant. That's how we, um, we learn more. That's how we kind of hopefully are less hurtful to others and <laughs> make this world a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I wish we could say a little bit more, but I don't want to kind of like push you to say even more, but I think that there's so much there um, when you mentioned about um, this, this idea of like questioning your own culture or um, being in a counter space where you, it, you feel safe enough to be able to, to question it because some cultural norms are actually, mm-hmm. are, yeah, are, are hurting some of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just, that, that is staying with me. Uh, I'm going to keep thinking about it, uh, about, because I have, uh, you know, like in, in again, it's, I'm, I'm talk, coming to you from my own kind of lived experience and how much we have struggled because not only are we a neurodiverse family, but we're also a mixed family. We're also bi- bicultural, mm-hmm. biracial. And so there's a lot of tensions from the, like culturally, there's that tension, the communication, there's a ten- the way that we kind of interact and we kind of experience the world. There's a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I myself am still trying to, to learn, mm-hmm. you know, what are the kind of best practices to hopefully kind of, both in my family and then with relationships with others and with what we teach others, kind of the folks that I mentor, mentor, um, to hopefully kind of make it a ripple effect. Uh, to, yeah. I think the biggest barrier to that is that most of us who are not white males are not diagnosed. Um, yes. And so we oh don't my know. gosh, women <laughs> yeah. and people of color. Yeah, uh, yeah go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I just got really excited when you said that because I'm like, yes, well, big it's yes. It's true. It's true. It, it, and so you think that you are lazy. Um, you think that there's something wrong with you. Um, you just internalize a lot of really self-hating messages um, because you don't understand how your brain works. And as soon as you're like, oh, I got this diagnosis and now I know why I do the things I do, all of a sudden you understand yourself better. That's the first step to loving yourself more to, you know, kind of having some power over your life. You know, you, I know my brain is like this and how do I hack my own brain to like make it so that I'm not dysfunctional all the time. Um, when I really need to get something done, right? And that also helps you communicate to others what your needs are. And I've talked to a lot of young women. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like the ADHD whisperer because I will talk to usually like young women that I've worked with at UCLA and they tell me a couple of things and I'm like, oh, you have ADHD. I mean, don't take my word for it, go talk to someone, but <laughs> I just feel like you are one of us. And I think that's like the secret superpower that neurodiverse people have is that we can, we just always know we like, we see someone kind of like being suspicious of of a fork or something or like you're one of us. No, like, we just like this person probably this this person yeah. probably that and I'm like yeah Mom, and then he just keeps going no we just we just know it like we there's these little things and they're not the common symptoms but they're just yeah. these random things where I'm like you you're one of us please go get tested and I'm thinking of someone in particular I'm not going to say her name but she went through a lot with her parents um you know her parents thinking she's lazy too I mean you get the the message that you should be ashamed of yourself from like every corner of the world and including from yourself and you know for her to go and get this diagnosis I think 
it was that first step in being able to ask for what she needs um, from her family, from, you know, maybe a workplace, from school. But the reality is that that first step is a huge step. It's, I mean, it's been everything for me. I only recently got diagnosed a few years ago. It's been huge for me. Um, but it's kind of like you take this big first step and then there's a huge barrier in your way because your workplace will begrudgingly maybe accommodate you um, if your accommodations um, you know, are reasonable, which like- Whatever that means. I'm like, can you treat me like a human being? Like, is that, like, do I have to put that in writing that I want y'all to just treat me normally like you treat everyone else? Um, and they might do it, they might not. They might say it's unreasonable or they might say that things that are really typical of people with ADHD or autism are unprofessional. And that's kind of like an out, it's a plausible deniability. Um, and so we kind of hit this barrier again where you don't know if you should even reveal it. Because people these days know how to discriminate against you without discriminating against you. They know how to get away with it. You know, I, I say it's kind of like people that get into the system, spend some time in prison and come out just knowing how to get away with a crime, right? Because it's not really like a rehabilitative process. And so that's what a lot of workplaces, supervisors, managers do. They just know um how to make sure that you know that you're different, that you're not part of the group, that we don't like you and that you're not normal while still technically meeting your accommodations. And so yes is a huge step. Anyone that's listening, I strongly encourage y'all, even if you have like a hint of doubt that some of this might apply to you, go get assessed. Um, but this is where I like as a mentor struggle to give advice um, to people because I haven't figured it out. And all I can say is like, just hope and pray that the job that you, you take um, does end up being inclusive. Um, but like you said, there's a lot of ableism. It's not seen in the same way that people, when people think of diversity, they usually think of cultural and racial diversity, I think, maybe gender diversity. So this is kind of like another identity that's part of who you are when you're born, but it hasn't really kind of reached that level of um, legitimacy, I think, in most workplaces and most schools. So you'll have professors that, that you know, accommodate you, but they think that you're scamming or they think that you're exploiting a system and that you're really just lazy or weird or something. And so like all I can say to anyone that's listening that, that has felt that is like we all need to stick together because we are our, our own informal and peer mentors and there might not be people within our systems that can do that for us. And so we need to create those, those spaces for ourselves. Wow. I, you know, usually I'm like, oh, so the final words, I feel like that was, that was it right there. Um, what, I'm really excited. I'm glad that you came on the show and, you know, offered your time um, sharing space with me because this conversation is critical about, you know, when it comes to destigmatizing it, you mm -hmm. know, because I know that a lot of times there's so many barriers to getting assessed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the barrier is lack of resources or lack of finances. It can be expensive to get assessed. Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, yep. firsthand. Mm -hmm um you know even just getting to the location finding a place like all that is a barrier but then even more so there are 
like the societal barriers, cultural barriers. Mm -hmm. When my son was younger, people telling me like, why are you getting him tested? You're trying to find something wrong with him as if it was a bad thing. Um, they're like, there's nothing wrong with your son. And even sometimes the assessment process in and of itself can, um, can feel like it's very deficit based, you know, like just getting asked, what is the problem? It's like, the problem is society. <laughs> it's not me. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, disability, like I don't really consider myself disabled if I was like, you know, in a vacuum, but I feel that I am in the context of the society that we have right mm. now. Um, I feel like I'm the normal one and I just don't understand anyone else, <laughs> but because like I'm in the minority, I can't really get away with that the way that like, you know, neurotypical people can as a, as a group. And so, um, it is one of those things that you fight for every single day. And no matter, just like being a first gen, it's like, no matter how high you climb or how much success you have, um, you're never really a hundred percent accepted. You're always a little bit on the fringes. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to shout out bell hooks real quick. Cause I, when I said fringes, it brought to mind one of my most favorite things that's ever been written. Um, that's about choosing the margins as a space of radical openness and just knowing that it's okay to be on the margins and that when you're on the margins, what you're doing is expanding that boundary when you're fighting for anyone that's marginalized is disenfranchised and you're out there on that fringe you're just pushing that boundary and you're making it so that like our you know circle of who we include is bigger and broader and wider and so you're just doing that work but you don't always see the results like y'all might die and and need a couple more generations to, <laughs> to really like make it happen um and it's often the, the case with grass grassroots type of work right but just know that that resistance that you're putting up, those are tiny steps, right? But they all add up to like pushing that margin back. Um, and, and like I said, creating a better world for everyone where we are more open um, and more accepting of, of everyone, you know, no matter how different they are or no matter how like disconnected you personally feel from them because I don't need everyone to be my best friend. I don't need everyone to be like, I met Stephanie and she's the most amazing person I've ever met. I Wait, just I can't say that? <laughs> you can, you can, you can and you should, but, <laughs> but I, I feel like that's what people think because a lot of these things are taken really personally. Okay. It's, it's seen as a personal um, attack, right? If I say we're ableist, and it's really not, it's just deconstructing like all of these things that we've been conditioned to think. And so um, I, you know, when I want more acceptance of neurodiversity, it's not, <laughs> it's not to make everyone my best friend. It's not because I, I need to uh, manipulate people into giving me a job or publishing something I wrote or whatever. It's simply to you know, pull the knife out of my back to like really badly paraphrase Malcolm X. It's like, let's just get back to ground level. Right now the bar is in hell and we are just fighting to get to ground level. And I think about, I don't know how old your son is, but he's you know, I hope that when he's my age, things are different. I hope so too. 
I hope so. If they're not, he can call me up and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) let me know where to go, who to talk to, but we have to keep pushing. We can't give in to like this kind of normative expectation. Um, You know, we have to fight for ourselves and for, for our whole community and, and for whoever's next, whoever we're not that we don't even, we haven't even realized we're being exclusive of yet. Sometimes it feels really hard to advocate for yourself and it feels like, oh, it's, I don't know, selfish. I shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. this. It's uncomfortable. But then if you think about it as you're not, that's when the the reason I became really good at advocating for myself was after I had my child, like in having him and having to learn to advocate for him and learn to advocate for myself. And so if you think about it as in advocating for myself, I'm advocating for my community. Yep. That's that's gonna that's gonna change a lot of things so like again ripple effect you know one person does it more people do it and then we're trying to like push those boundaries you know because Mm -hmm. ableism gets veiled under professionalism and Mm -hmm. and that's that's not okay yeah yeah it's not okay but a lot of us have also internalized that professionalism is is a facet of white supremacy and we have all internalized that and a lot of us gain our value um, from feeling like we are kind of getting closer and closer to that ideal. And, you know, I have a friend uh, named Brittany. Um, hey, Brittany Corville, shout out. She's also a first gen. She's amazing. She's a, a free Britney Spears advocate, a lawyer. Um, and she talks a lot about like, what if I say no? Um, and that's something that's just been so much on my mind since she said that to me a few weeks ago. It's just, what if we say no? yeah, this is the norm, but what if I say no to that? Then what? Um, and seeing what happens when you say no, and of course you have to be strategic about this. Like I'm not telling people to all go get fired or something. I, like I understand there are realities. We all live in capitalist <laughs> yeah. hell. It's 2021. Yeah, we're all trying to survive, pay the bills, take care of our families and stuff. But thinking about what happens if you say no, instead of um, kind of tacitly accepting those things that harm you and, and picking your moment to say no, I think is one of the most empowering things that you can do for yourself. And is something that a mentor can help you with, right? That's the person that's gonna kind of um, gas you up to go do that, right? And confirm um, and kind of like push down those doubts that you might have about yourself. And that's the other part of community that I think is so valuable. It's like, yes, you can give to others by speaking about these things, but when you have your own mentor, they can encourage you to speak up for yourself and kind of push aside all those, oh, excuse me, push aside all of those um, ideas about humility, right? About being humble and like never kind of putting yourself on center stage the reality is when you do that, you are speaking for yourself, but you're speaking for like, who knows how many invisible people out there. Um, and especially when you get in a position of power, if you don't do that, I mean, it's a waste. It's such mm-hmm. a waste. And it's such a betrayal of, you know, everyone, everyone else who shares your identity and doesn't have that level of power to, to affect change in those ways. I think that's a great way for us. We're getting close to time for us to get ready to wrap up. Yeah. Um, 
if there's any last words or um, if someone listens to this episode, resonates and wants to connect in any way, shape or form, how can folks reach you? How can folks reach me? Well, first of all, anyone listening to this needs to go on Facebook and join the Empowering First Generation College Students group. It is lit. (laughs) We have a lot of fun in there. Um, I am on Twitter, but I literally just made a professional account. Um, and I'm not I gonna give y'all my <laughs> I'm not giving y'all my shit posting account. So um, <laughs> that needs to be private. So I am gonna figure out what my handle is and I will send that to you. Anyone's yes. welcome to follow me. Um and yeah, I'll give you some contact info because I'm not really too used to engaging with people. Um <laughs> In you know what? The, the Facebook group is, is good enough. You know, you, you don't need yeah. to have a million ways to contact you. So I whatever link you want to share with me, I'll put it in the show notes. Definitely the Facebook yeah. group. And don't um, forget, y'all, tell your library to go get our book, Campus Service Workers Supporting First Generation College Students. It is so emotional. If I have more time, I would tell you about like every single essay that's in there because some of these contributors just... Whew, I mean, they have stories, they have stuff to say. Um, And I'm so grateful that they, you know, chose to share those stories with us because they are honestly life, it was life changing for me just to read some of these stories. And so, um, you know, encourage your your schools to, you know, maybe cut back on the econ textbooks and focus on, (laughs) (laughs) on, on something like this that um, can affect the positive change like right there on their campus. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming today and just sharing so much wisdom and so much knowledge with us. It was fun to chat. You know, pandemic life is kind of isolating and great to be in community with you and and hear your story too and hear about your son and your family. So thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in the Grad School Femme Drawing Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or email me your review at gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com. You can also show your support by going to gradschoolfemtouring.com and joining my mailing list where you'll receive weekly tips, podcast and blog updates, as well as discounts for my digital downloads, online courses, and much more. One last thing. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Until next time.